Our reading is going to come from Matthew chapter 28 this morning. Matthew 28. I'm thinking of a man in a tomb. When he died, he was covered in cloth. And he was put into this tomb in the rock. And people called him a king. Some people called him a god. And when they had placed him into this tomb, they covered it. They closed the tomb in. Now, the location of the tomb of this man has been a long subject of curiosity for archaeologists. There's been a lot of people who've searched for it, made claims about it. And come up dry until, actually, in 1922, uh, when a gentleman named Howard Carter discovered his tomb uh, in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt. The man I'm talking about is King Tut. King Tut's body, when he died, was preserved. His body needed to be preserved because he needed it again. Their belief was they needed to preserve the body if, if, so that his soul could re, uh, re-inhabit it on his journey into the afterlife. And so in order to sustain his body for the resurrection, they emptied it out of all of his organs and they put his organs in jars because he would need those later also. And they filled his body with natural salts and uh, sacks filled with sawdust to absorb the moisture. And then they wrapped him in bandages. They mummified him. And then they placed Tutankhamun in a casket that was the shape of his future self. The belief was the gods had skins of gold and they had bones of silver. And so... They placed him, uh, they helped him adopt his new form, his resurrected body. And they put a mask on him. And the mask uh, gives him the face of a god because that's what he was going to be. He was going to be resurrected as a god. And uh, this the symbology and his beard all represent the fact that he's taking on a, a higher personhood. And on the back of the skull, on the back of the mask, were spells that were etched into the mask from the Book of the Dead to make sure that his body and his limbs had the energy to make the journey through the afterlife necessary for resurrection. Now, we know all of this Because when they opened his tomb, he was still in it. He was still there. Not Jesus. 
And Jesus didn't get embalmed. Jesus didn't have a mask. He didn't have spells. He didn't have wealth. There wasn't food put in his tomb. There wasn't evidences inscribed on the walls of all of the things he had accomplished. Nobody uh, put the rituals or the incantations necessary for his soul to make the journey. None of that happened. He was hastily stuffed in a borrowed tomb alone. His tomb is empty. Now, we, re- we rejoice at the resurrection uh, because we know the beginning and the end. But when it was happening, the days between the crucifixion and the resurrection, the witnesses, the followers of Jesus Christ, it was not clear to them what was happening. And so it was troubling. Those who followed Jesus, who knew a great deal about him, who understood many of his teachings, had placed their faith and even their lives in him, still their understanding of what was going on when he died, their understanding was clouded by how they internalized the notion of salvation in the kingdom of God. When Jesus would talk kingdom of God, they would hear it as though it applied to the world and their lives now. It was going to happen now. We think in terms of that. We think in terms of how our lives now are going to be affected. That's, if it matters to us, it matters to our life now. And so when Jesus spoke of the kingdom and he spoke of justice in the kingdom, they thought justice now. When he spoke of the, the power of the kingdom, they expected that power now. The, the peace of the kingdom now. The end to hardship, the end of hardship, they expected it to all come now. We view, people, all of us view and value life as the realm where things that matter happen. And we see death as a terminus to that. If you're married, you're married until death parts you. And then you're not married. If you have a lot of things, they're yours until you die, and then they're given away because they're not yours. Whatever Jesus was going to do or to usher in or to create, they expected it to happen now. And then he died. And that is the setting that we are in when we come to Matthew chapter 28. Let me read the first 10 verses. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. 
Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. When Christ died, uh, the disciples of Jesus, his followers were scattered. Some deserted, some were in hiding. They were all confused and grieved. So it shouldn't come as too much as a surprise that the first people to come to the tomb uh, were some of the women who were associated with Christ. We know from other gospel accounts that they were coming to the tomb to dress the body, to give it a proper burial. It had been buried in haste because of the Sabbath and the Passover, and they couldn't come yesterday on Saturday because it was Passover or Sabbath, so they've waited. They're essentially coming at the the first light to finally tend to the body of of their Lord. They're coming to pay respects to the dead, to dignify him. Jesus never got a funeral, and they were coming to do something. And in that process, they meet the testimony of the angel, and then they meet the Lord himself, who appears to them. This picture sits in such contrast to the idea or the notion of someone like King Tut being buried. On the one hand, you have Christ who is murdered and hurried off into a grave with nothing, so much so that a few days later, Somebody's coming just to do something. And on the other side, you have a tomb full of, full of wealth and riches and accomplishments, full of all the things that he had in his life, which are supposed to assist him in his death. I just want us to stop and think about that, that contrast, because it really describes if we were if we were to boil our lives down, we might admit that we are heading, each one of us, to one of those two tombs. One or the other. I'm either heading to an empty tomb. You know, my expectation one day is that Christ, through the power of Christ, I will be resurrected. He rose, therefore I will rise. I'm heading to that tomb, in which case it doesn't matter what I bring with me. It's a tomb that's reliant on his power, or I'm heading to a common end of man. 
which is we arrive at the end of things and we hope what we've accrued or accomplished or gathered is sufficient in some way, somehow to convince whatever spirit world is next to let us in. I'd ask you to consider how you pursue meaning and significance in your life. I mean, all of us are searching for that. That's a common search, meaning and significance. So in that, you and I have a lot in common. How we pursue meaning and significance changes. It varies. Some pursue it through wealth. Others pursue it through power or success or health or beauty, popularity, family. Sometimes it's through escape. Substance abuse is as much a search for meaning as, uh, as any. We, if we're not careful, we fill our lives with these things, but they're of no help to us in our death. You can fill your tomb with them. And someone will find them thousands of years later. It's still just a tomb with a dead body. Except for the resurrection of Christ, this is how all life ends. All life ends with the soul passing into eternity, leaving all of its material possessions behind and having to answer, answer to the Lord. One interesting thing that is uh, somewhat familiar to the Christian story Somewhat. So one of the reasons that it was so important to equip Pharaoh with his body and his organs and with wealth and all of these things and food was because he had a journey to go on. And this journey if in the Book of the Dead, these very well-documented portions of uh, Egyptian ritual and belief, there was a belief that he was going to make this journey, be escorted on this journey by sort of the God of the dead, and he's going to be brought eventually to a scale. And this scale would be, was presiding over the scale was a God of sort of justice and order, ethics. And the heart of Pharaoh, or the heart of the dead, was going to be placed in this scale because the Egyptians believed that your heart was the measure of who you were. You were put in this scale and you were going to be weighted out against truth and order. We too believe that. Maybe in a less descriptive and colorful way, we believe that when we die, we meet our maker. And there is a concern for what's been done. And for those of us who know Christ, we have this hope, right? This hope that instead of the scales which balance our lives out, right? The Lord, the Lord has, Christ has accomplished the scales. He's stood in the balance for us and we're welcomed in because of him. Our hope is our name is found in his book. In other words, the image is our hope is that he knows us and that we know him.
two tombs. There's an empty tomb which once held Christ. And then there is the tomb of the world which is full of our things. Which for a time gave us meaning but proved to offer us nothing in death. Let's keep reading. While they were going, this is verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. I find this to be an interesting account in part because the Gospel of Matthew, I mean, the resurrection happens in 28 chapter 28, and it's the last chapter of the Bible, the last chapter of the Gospel. I mean, there's not a lot left that Matthew says, and these five verses occupy about a quarter of it. I think part of the reason that Matthew does this practically is that it's our belief that Matthew's audience was a Jewish audience, or a largely Jewish audience. So he's writing a Gospel that is caring about the things that were, the things uh, the Jewish uh, that involved Jewish interest and Jewish concern, and this might have been one of them. This this rumor in Jerusalem. So we have these two competing claims: we have an empty tomb because Christ rose, which we can put our faith in, or we have an alternative excuse. And the truth of the matter is, is we don't know for sure that Jesus rose from the dead. The church worships Christ in faith. It really is two competing accounts. And someone who was a little bit skeptical could say, yeah, well, they're competing accounts, but saying someone stole the body is a little more realistic than saying the body came but was reanimated by life and walked out. And I hear that. However, you know, the more incredible the claim, the harder it is to sustain. Nobody claiming that Jesus rose from the dead got rich off of it. None of them got popular. None of them got famous, really. I mean, they're famous for their infamous lives. I mean, if we have to ask questions of motive, if the apostles are going to steal the body of Christ, why would they do it? And there's really only, for humans, we're not that creative. There's about three or four reasons why we would do that. You know, money, money, I don't know, money. Right? I mean, so you have to ask questions of motive. Why would the why would the apostles make this ruse? I mean, how can they I mean for longer than our nation's history, for over two hundred years, claiming Jesus Christ in the beginning gains you nothing but persecution, nothing but persecution. To the disciples, holding this claim cost them everything, and right from the very beginning it cost them everything. It wasn't as though Jesus Christ gave them the impression that they would be rich. 
And so they went into this and then it turned out poor. Jesus himself told them, you should know you're going, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So from the very beginning, their expectation was this would be in an earthly sense a losing prospect and it turned out to be a losing prospect. I would just say, I guess what I'm trying to say is it seems actually more strange to me that the disciples would sacrifice everything, their name, their, their family, their Hebrew identity, their homes, their very lives. It seems unreasonable to me that they would sacrifice everything for a man who's decomposing in the trunk of their car. But here's, here's the rub. This is one of the reasons I think this is in the chapter. There is always a space for people to reject the notion of the resurrection of Jesus. There always will be that space. God has afforded you that space. There's not enough evidence to categorically prove it. Someone can always say that. There's not enough evidence or it's not the way I would have done it or, or it's not scientific enough. There's always going to be available to you, to each one of us, the chance to reject the notion of the resurrection and feel well-founded about it. I don't think that God wants to bridge that gap for you. I don't think he wants to eliminate all doubt for you. Jesus talks a lot about the value of faith, the richness of faith, the purpose of faith, the value of believing without seeing. And God seems singularly interested to see what in this life you will put your trust in by faith. That's what he's watching for, is what are you going to trust in in this life? You know, there's really only two tombs, very different ways, very different ways to each one of them. And God wants to know, how, what by faith are you going to put your trust in? If we knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ was resurrected, well, we would all believe it, but the nature of our belief would be circumspect. Why are we following him? Now the motive of our following would be questionable. It would be like, if you won $100 million in the lottery, how you would view all your new friends, right? How many friends would you have? Some of you are thinking I'd have a lot of friends, and some of you are thinking, I don't think I'd have any friends. If you knew, well, this is the man, if I say I follow him, I'll go to heaven, and you knew that beyond a shadow of a doubt, what kind of friend would you be to him? I think the Lord has put the notion of Jesus Christ and his resurrection just far enough away so the fact that you have to choose him for the right reason. You have to look at his life and what he says, his claims, why he died for you. You have to take all that in and lean on it. Or you could fill your tomb up with a lot of stuff. One of those two. One more reading. Verse 16. 17 is of peculiar interest to me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now 17 catches me because there's still doubt. (laughs) I don't understand at some level. How do you still doubt? Jesus has met you. You're on the mountain with him. You're visiting with him. There's disciples worshiping him. And it says, but some still doubted. And I, I, I'm like you, I suppose, just trying to figure out what the nature of that. My, my hunch is the nature of the doubt is not, is this person really here? It may be more to the effect of what are the implications of this? What are the ramifications of it? the ability to put faith in the other things that Jesus has said. You might think of like their faith was still weak. I guess what I'm saying is, who in the world is, could be closer to the knowledge of the resurrection than the disciples, and yet still inside of them is doubt? And you want to see how God fixes it? He doesn't do like a wonder. He doesn't move a mountain or heal a leper. He doesn't do, raise anyone else. He doesn't do those things. You know what he does? He puts them to work. That's what he does. He puts them to work. He says to them, all authority has been given to me. So what I'm telling you to do is I want you to go and be like me. And when you go and you're like me, I'll be with you. The notion is, Right? The little faith that we have, the little faith that we, I see him, but I have my doubts. The way God deals with this doubt is by, not by simply telling us again, but actually making us apply our lives towards him. And it's in us living him out that our faith becomes real, that we slowly and methodically extinguish doubt and build faith. What I'm saying to you is, it's no use to simply believe the tenant that Jesus was resurrected. It doesn't do all that much. You can cognitively believe it, but if you're not reorienting your life around it, there's still going to be doubt. If it's just a scholastic fact that you say, I'm going to hold on to it because when I die, I hope it does something for me. Well, I'm going to say, well, then your life is not very useful and you're going to live with doubt. God will not be useful because you're not using God. You're heading to King Tut's tomb with resurrection in your mind. You see what he does here? Jesus' solution to their doubt sounds like this. Put your shoes on. Do what I did. Live in my name. Trust is putting your weight on something. That's what trust is. It's putting your weight on it. Not just, uh, yeah, I believe the sky's blue. It's betting on it, living towards it, leaning into it. Those of us who are heading towards an empty tomb are putting our weight in the empty tomb. I want to ask you a question, just maybe a couple questions. I want you to 
ask and answer for yourself, what are the things in your life that you're doing that, by which you're pursuing meaning and significance? How are you pursuing meaning and significance? It's going to, I mean, I mean, I say even for my own life, there's, there's an efficacy that I share in this world and there's a growing efficacy that I enjoy with the Lord and it feels like I'm fading from one into the other. What's that efficacy that you have here that God would say, start leaning into this? We've all seen the 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 athlete who lived for their athleticism and then they're done. And there's nothing. All their meaning was in that. We've seen we've seen these things in our lives and among people we love. What is that for you? And I would say if you're young, if you're a young adult, I don't uh Certainly, I'm not going to judge you if you're very optimistic about yourself. I was. I just add 40 years to whatever your thought is, okay? It doesn't look so good anymore. And if you're pursuing wealth, well, tell me, when's enough? I have heard more wealthy people tell me that they look at simple folk and wonder how they can rest and relax than I can shake a stick at. People who are making and making and making and never resting. If it's power and notoriety, I just want to know, when are you going to get off the ladder? How high of the ladder do you have to climb? When, is, when do you say, this is enough? Can you mark it? Can you experience it? Have you, have you been able to feel that in your own life? Of This does not define me. Children are your efficacy. What happens when one of them fails or rejects you or... What happens when your home is empty? Health and beauty, just add 40 years. No matter what age you are, 40 years from now, you look worse. All right? No matter how healthy you are, 40 years from now, add a pill or two every morning when you wake up. Even if it's pleasure. I mean, I mean I'm thinking back to the things when I felt young and vibrant and immortal. Uh, let me just ask you, pleasure. So that pleasure, when you're done with it, do you feel full or empty? Because Jesus Christ is here today to say, there are one of two tombs. There's one of two ways to live. And you can. You can fill your life up with things of this world and with ideas and things that are within your arm's reach now, that you can have now, that feel valuable now. You can do that all you want. And at the end of the day, they're going to fill up your tomb and you're going to go to judgment and have to sit on a scale. Or, or, you can live your life towards an empty tomb. That's what you have offered. There really are only two ways to live. Let me pray.
Lord, we pray the mercy of your Holy Spirit would fall upon each spirit here. We pray, Lord, that you convict and comfort as you see need. We pray for souls that are brought closer to you or turned to you in the first way in the first time, Lord. How can we not, on the resurrection day, pray for conversion? Whether it's someone here or a loved one or a friend who is just heading the wrong way so hard, Lord. We pray today that people might open their eyes to the empty tomb, see it, see it and understand it. Understand that the way to new life, the way to eternal life is through the Son who has given us life. Lord, and I pray that we would, we would turn over to you the, the things that we've held wrongly or poorly or the things that we've put too much meaning into, too much false significance in, Lord. Help us to confess in a very real way the passing nature of those things. Your scriptures say, Lord, you've put eternity in us. So I pray today, Lord, help us to number our days. We pray this in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.